Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Executive Podcast, a place where executives share their stories, life lessons, and advice on how to make it at the highest level. Today, I'm excited that we've got Yosh Eisbart here with us. Yosh was the co-founder and CEO of Nimble, which he and his business partner uh, grew a B2B enterprise software business to $50 million in revenue and over 300 people uh, before they exited. Yosh, great to have you here. Thank you so much, Matt. I'm super excited for the conversation. So, Yosh, you built an incredibly successful company. What are you doing back at the startup line? What? Why are you crazy to, to start this over and be a second-time founder? Uh, you know, I, I think that um, just from a, uh, a DNA perspective, uh, my whole – uh, juice and excitement is really around creation and around um, the startup process. And so, um, you know, my business partner, who I, uh, in essence, have been married to since 2005, Michael Pytel, and so much of um, my um, professional career has been um, fortunately linked to Mike's brilliance and, and experience, um, you know, we had a great, great run with our last company. We started um, Nimble, as you had mentioned, uh, uh, an enterprise uh, B2B software and services company based here in, in Colorado. And um, that that was a bit different than Fulfilled, our, our latest startup. Um, uh, Nimble was a, a self-funded um, business and it was a lot easier because it was primarily services and we were selling hours as opposed to software. Uh, but you know, we grew that and, and had a, had a great run and a lot of, uh, a, a lot of learning and, and some success. And to answer your question succinctly, I think that, you know, Mike and I felt that we had, we had more go, uh, and more fuel in the tank. Uh, to try to do it again. And one of the things that we didn't do at Nimble was while we built uh, custom software and uh, integrated hardware uh, for our customers, uh, we never commoditized that IP. We never brought that intellectual property to market. And so with Fulfilled, we have the opportunity now to um, build from scratch uh, the the software we always dreamed of, and, and that's what we're doing now. We love it. It's awesome. That's awesome. And so you obviously come into you know your second startup with a lot more experience. What are really the the key lessons you took from Nimble that you're trying to take into Fulfilled now? I mean, there's so many. Um, you know, I would say that um, first off, uh, for those that can see the the, the video, um, you know. Uh, like my name, uh, Eisbart says, uh, it, uh, the little translation from German is is icicle beard or ice beard. <laughs> and, um, you know, my my pepper beard or my, my gray beard um, is a reflection of, of uh, ain't wisdom, uh, but more age. And um, so, you know, being so much older now, um, and, and having been the experience of, of the 10 plus years at Nimble, there were so many um, powerful lessons that were learned that we're really now trying to 
put into effect uh, with fulfilled. So I think some key things that are important is that, you know, when you're starting a, a business, um, you know, two founders, which I highly, highly recommend, maybe one, um, one learning experience is, is finding a right co-founder, which is really hard and presents itself with a whole host of other challenges because uh, a co-founder experience, quite frankly, in some cases is even more, can be more challenging uh, than a marriage um, mm. and can get into some of that. Um, but finding a co-founder, someone who compliments you really well and um, in the best of relationships provides you with the peer support when you're down or vice versa, provides you with a real mirror of um, helping you see your blind spots or blind spots of the company that, uh, you know, we as, um, you know, strong, pig-headed founders feel like we know everything. Um, all that needs to be within a constructive and radically candid um set of interactions. So that's super imperative. Uh, so having a co-founder for me, um, I think is, uh, I know is one of the keys that we had uh, for success back at Nimble. The other thing uh, is I feel, and you're also talking to a sales guy, is that we were just having this discussion um, among the our, the three founders that fulfilled uh, in our weekly um ELT, uh, what, how do you, how do you approach your business? Are you a product led business or are you a sales driven business? And, um, as objective as I can be, I feel that it is crucial to be a sales driven business. Um, it's important to have phenomenal product or services and constantly focus on, as our, my old boss used to say, delivery excellence. And if you don't got sales, you don't got nothing. And so for me, um, and ethics and, um, and presenting to the customer what you're capable of doing and always being forthright, uh, is a, is a pillar and uh, always focusing on uh, revenue generation because that fuels uh, that fuels everything. That it fuels growth, which enables you to hire more people and being able to uh, continue to focus on um, key aspects of your business. Those I could go on forever, but I think that those are some of the the two most important nuggets that we learned and we're trying to reimplement with uh, with fulfilled. And so when you're, you know, you're trying to be a, a sales fo for, you know, a sales focused organization, how do you do that, especially in the beginning when you almost are maybe a little bit embarrassed by the product, right? If you got it out early enough, you know, how do you really put yourself out there and get feedback and really push to get revenue in the door as quickly as possible? Matt, you don't know me that well. I, I don't get embarrassed that easily. <laughs> I have a tremendous, uh, strong sense of self. <laughs> uh, no, your, your point is well taken. I think that, um, you know, as, as you're building a startup, getting your first set of customers is imperative because you need those references in order to be able to get 
other uh, other customers. And so um, I think working with friendlies, quite frankly, um, is a great way to be able to get your foot in the door. Working with um, folks that you've had relationships with in the past who, um, quite frankly, will be more forgiving. Um, understanding mm-hmm. where you are in the life cycle, as an example, um, right now with Fulfilled, we are uh, working on deploying the product, uh, quite frankly, in some cases, as a co-innovation. So we've completed our MVP uh, as of uh, December of that last year, uh, so you know, a month-ish ago. And some of the customers uh, that we're talking to as we're uh, passing contracts back and forth, they're fully aware of where we are in our product. And the, A, some of them are um, are comfortable with where we are in, in regards to feature and function. And um, others are excited about co-innovation and bringing some functionality that maybe off-the-shelf products don't yet have. And because we are a startup and we're nimble, uh, we've got the ability to bring some of that feature and function forward as um, as maybe some of our competitors don't because our competitors are companies of 5,000 people and getting a product uh, moved uh, quicker along the release schedule requires an act of Congress. So right. um, I think those are the two things that, that we're, we're doing. Um, you know, there is a balance around selling the vision and generating excitement around what's possible and what the roadmap looks like in 24 months and tempering that with where we are now. Uh, the customers that we're um we're working with right now, they understand that balance. They're excited. And some have quite frankly said, hey, Yosh, love what y'all are envisioning. Come back to us when you got three customers. And, you know, those are in the Salesforce right now with a with a um, re-engaged date of, you know, six right. months. Right. So you're, you have to find the customers that are willing to engage now and be part of the process where others are just, it's too early. You have to go back to them. Bingo. Yep, exactly. You know, the... The co-founder, you know, you talked about how important the co-founder is. I would love to, to double-click on that and, and because, you know, a great marriage, you know, doesn't come out come without its struggles, right? What are the key things that you found you had to get aligned with, with your co-founder? I think and there, there's multiple there. Um, you know, as strong co-founders, and, and it may not always be the case because sometimes in a in a co-founder relationship you have someone that is um, is the one that brings along someone else as opposed to a 50-50 relationship which is the way it's been with me and Mike since 2005. Um, so um, I think there's a couple of things. One is is there needs to be tremendous self-awareness um, and not only is that important uh, in the professional world, uh, it's important in the personal world in terms of trying to, to cultivate um, the most uh, successful uh, type of relationships. But having self-awareness as a co-founder, understanding what your strengths are, understanding what your 
business partner strengths are, knowing when to lean in, knowing when to step back, knowing when to take the lead, knowing when to take the back seat, knowing when to call out your business partner or have them call you out when you're wrong. Um, and from a self-awareness perspective, being clear-headed enough and not pig-headed enough that you're willing to accept the feedback and hopefully, and it's not always the case, especially when uh, not only is tension high, but the stakes are high, uh, having your opinion being, uh, uh, or your, your perspective being told it's not accurate. And so self-awareness is imperative on both sides. Um, being constructive in communication is fundamental. Um, you know, and that hasn't always been the case. I mean, uh, Mike and I, uh, you know, some of the most intense interactions in my life have been, you know, Mike and I nose to nose and, uh, not necessarily saying the, the, the nicest things to each other. And then, you know, uh, fast forward, uh, you know, a week later and, you know, throwing back a beer and talking how we were both idiots. Um, right. So that's important. I mean, I think, quite frankly, it's probably less about the business side. It's more around the EQ mm. side. I think that's where, I don't know what the statistic is, but 80% of businesses fail because of co-founder uh, disharmony. Um, so wow. being able to find somebody that you can work with well and also seeing yourself on how you're behaving and how to be better, uh, that's fundamental to, you know, co-founder flow. Well, one of the you know, amazing traits of entrepreneurs is you have to be so set, right, with your vision and be so convicted. So when you have two co-founders who maybe disagree, how would you resolve that? Would you lean on your board and be, and go to them and say, Who, who's right here? Because we both, we both think we're right. How would you resolve that? I mean, there's different tools that, that, that I've utilized, that we've utilized over the past. One has been, we never had a board at Nimble. Um, we had an advisory board, but it was more um, uh, folks that were really experienced providing input but they had no fiduciary, they had no um, real oversight, quite frankly. I mean, they were a sounding board. Um, but I think um, some things that we have had some, some, some great um, opportunity for, uh, for uh, looking at each other, looking at ourselves and um, working through challenge has been a business coach. Um, everyone's a business coach. So it's really important to find the right business coach and like yeah. a therapist, somebody who right. you really, uh, you both jive with. And that therapist is truly objective and someone who is respected by both parties. Um, you know, that's one way. Um, I think that's, that's probably the one that we've exercised the most uh, to, to have some success in terms of struggling through or, or, or working through some struggle. And Yosha, you said you never had a board. Does that mean you never raised capital for Nimble? So we never raised money for Nimble. Um, okay. And that was, again, much easier because it was a services company. And Mike and I were billable 
uh, all the way through year number three. And we started just the two of us as consultants. And so, you know, we were selling our time and every dollar, uh, you know, a good percentage of that went into the kitty, enabling us to be able to build uh, dry powder to be able to hire folks and to market and blah, blah, blah. With Fulfilled, we, uh, we are a global um, CISO compliant enterprise grade uh, B2B warehouse management orchestration platform leveraging both hardware and software. And so outside of that being a mouthful, it requires a ton of capital to build that level of product. So we've raised 4 million in venture capital uh, and our team now is uh, 13, soon to be 14 folks. Wow. And so it's a lot different because we, um, you need to invest in the product and the people before you start generating revenue. Totally different type of business. Would love to, to talk about Fulfilled. Clearly when you were at Nimble, you and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, you saw something that created Fulfilled, right? And it was something that it was a different, clearly a product came out of it and you know it didn't seem like that would fit under the service company, uh, Nimble. What was that and, and how did this come about? Yeah, so, you know, when we were um, helping customers, Nestle, Cintas, Pepsi, Hallmark, Gates, the San Francisco 49ers, we were brought in as, um, as consultants to help them innovate and, um, you know, propel their business and whatever the respective uh, objectives were. Um, and we worked within uh, primarily um, an enterprise software product called SAP. Um, SAP is the largest uh, enterprise software product in the world. Um, and while we were implementing SAP, often for manufacturers or wholesale distributors or high tech or whatever, um, we were asked, uh, can you develop some complementary software that uh, could um, easily uh, integrate with SAP and enhance it above and beyond you know, existing feature and function? And then sometimes we were asked, hey, not only can you do that custom dev, but could you also integrate IoT hardware that could extend feature and function of core SAP? And we did it. And, you know, being um, a sales driven organization, always focused on revenue, 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 any real type of pause or kind of, quite frankly, investment in future opportunity, we just didn't afford ourselves with that because we were so focused on growth, growth, growth. If you spend six months on building something and then taking it to market, uh, that is a, um, while that's a long-term play, it, that doesn't always reap the rewards and it requires vision and foresight and investment, et cetera. So we never did it. We, we, we would build it for the customer and we move on. Well, yeah. you know, as we ended Nimble, um, and this was pre, um, this was pre COVID. So, um, we 
and, and when I mean that, um, you know, the supply chain that everybody's talking about and it's on the front page of the, of the New York Times and literally an article a week ago in regards to challenges around warehousing and supply chain logistics, et cetera. Um, this idea was, um, was born pre, pre supply chain, mad disruption of everyone sitting at home and, you know, ordering, you know, uh, snuggies, uh, on, on Amazon. Right. So, uh, we just felt like based upon our experience within the enterprise software world and implementing both SAP solution, which is called extended warehouse management or EWM, as well as integrating core SAP with the competitors, such as Manhattan, Blue Yonder, High Jump, et cetera. We just felt like there is so much opportunity here in building a better warehouse management product that this is a great way for us to spend time and energy. Now we bring in Michael and his beautiful mind and the whole concept of location and digital twin, meaning creating a digitization of the warehouse, a physical space and creating that digitized as what they call a digital twin. The power of digital twin, which we had experience again with, uh, with Nimble and adding the digitization of physical space along with core warehouse feature and function and some additional differentiations such as deep learning, artificial intelligence and hardware and software as a product. We just felt like this was a phenomenal opportunity that, that it's not in the market. Um, yeah. And part of the reason is it's a big lift. I mean, this, is um, this is a major disruptor, uh, which knock on wood, uh, you know, hopefully we're successful, but we're not just competing against the heritage, uh, well-established ERP companies like Oracle, SAP, and Microsoft. And we're not just competing against the IBMs and the Deloitte's and uh, Accenture's, uh, where they build this like Nimble did as a, as a custom one-off. We're also competing against the hardware providers that are creating the scanners, such as the Honeywells and the Panasonics, et cetera. So we're right in this bullseye of cons major big four consultant, major ERP and OEM, and no one's doing this right now. These are more kind of one-offs. And so this is a really exciting opportunity. So exciting that, um, among our incredible investors, um, one of our investors is a fellow by the name of Jeff Wilkie and Jeff, uh, was the number two over at Amazon reporting directly into Bezos from 1999 through 2021 responsible for their entire global consumer business, meaning that anything on Amazon Marketplace, Amazon Prime, or Whole Foods, he was the head of the food chain there. So he believes so strongly in what we're doing that he put his own money in. Wow. Um, so super exciting. So this is this. 
How do you find Jeff, right? I mean, how do you find someone like that with his knowledge? You know, how do you get to someone like that? So one of the things, you know, you answered earlier, it's like kind of what are some keys to success in the startup? And um, I would say that hustle, 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 which, you know, is trite um, and everybody says it, uh, but the constant hustle and the constant networking, you never know where concentric circles and what type of touch point you can get. And yeah. we, I mean, quite frankly, it's like, you know, what is luck? It's like, you know, putting yourself in the path of opportunity and, and, and seizing it. And so we were able to get in or on Jeff's radar because our lead investor, which happened through uh, another uh, uh, lucky uh, connection, which happened uh, because of a LinkedIn post that we put on early. So uh, the, the chain is as follows. We were highlighting what we were doing as a startup, which was super basic and very early, pre-revenue, pre-investment. Michael and I had invested in some of our own money but this was before any venture capital was raised. We highlighted something on LinkedIn. They were just hustling. And the largest prop tech venture capital firm in Europe, uh, one of our investors called Pi Labs, they reached out and said, hey, we work within the, uh, the warehousing space. We'd like to have a conversation. Absolutely, let's do it. So we spoke to them. They had conviction. They wanted to invest. And so they then started to reach out to other venture capital groups, primarily in the United States, that they wanted to have a relationship with. And they happened to then reach out to 10110, didn't really know them before. And 10110 is, a, is one of our uh, lead investors out of LA. And we had some great conversations with them. They had conviction. And they said, we're in. And then they said, you know, someone that is part of our radar, but we don't really have the strongest relationship with is a fellow by the name of Jeff Wilkie. Would you be willing to take the call? We're like, hell yeah. So after two 29-minute conversations with Jeff, he's like, how much is left on the cap table? I'm in. So it's wow. all those pings, again, that yeah. you never know where it's going to happen. Constantly being out there, throwing it out there, whether you've got all the information or not. And, and obviously, you know, providing some type of valuable content, it doesn't need to be Play-Doh, but you know, um, it's gotta be something. You never know how you're gonna get to a, you know, a Jeff Wilkie. You know, and as the CEO, that's, that's part of your job, right? Is, I mean, you're, it's so many different roles, especially as a founder CEO, but sometimes networking is not emphasized enough. How would you advise other, you know, early founders and CEOs, I mean, how much of their time should be, you know, trying to connect dots or, or get themselves out there when you really don't know when that's going to pay off, right? A lot of times when you're meeting people, you have no idea who they know. And so you're kind of taking constant risks with your time. I mean, I think a good percentage of your time, and if I were to quantify it, I mean, I'm spending probably 40% of my time out there connecting with people on LinkedIn, 
sometimes getting a response, most often not. Yeah. Um, I'm part of uh, this amazing business network called YPO, um, where uh, I spend a good amount of energy there uh, focused on uh, a, um, a board that I'm involved in around entrepreneurship and innovation. But through that board membership uh, or board volunteering, I'm meeting phenomenal people that are not only benefiting me personally and my learning and networking and et cetera, but it's directly impacting fulfilled. So I am a huge fan of, of constant networking and at all stages. I mean, you want to be judicious too, and you don't want to yeah. just take every single meeting, although quite frankly, I, I probably do. Yeah. Uh, but I think that it's imperative for, for personal growth, for business growth, uh, for never knowing where the universe is going to unfold to really spend quality time making meaningful connections. Cause again, you never know where it will lead. Right. And, and as we, you know, talk about, you know, being a CEO, that's a huge piece of it. What would you say are, you know, the other things that really fall under the CEO title, especially early on? And, and how does that change as you grow? I mean, obviously, you know, starting Nimble, you know, 10 plus years ago, CEO is very different probably than when at the end of the 10 years when you got acquired. What are the things that you're really focused on early that you know in five, seven years will be very different? Well, I'm, I'm a, um, a great question. I'm a, um, a sales and marketing focused, uh, business guy. And while I do come from a, uh, an engineering background and I come from a, a development background as a programmer, uh, years ago, I am of the of the perspective that a CEO's role, which quite frankly is kind of, you know, how Mike and I have divided it. I mean, my title is CEO, Mike is CTO, um, and we're 50-50. I mean, and all important business decisions uh, are um, discussed around the table between me, Mike, and Rick, our third co-founder. When it was just me and Mike back in uh, our past company, um, my title was CEO, um, whereas um, my responsibilities, again, as you as you alluded to, when it's early on, you know, you wear a ton of different hats. You know, as the company scales, and if you're doing it right, you're delegating uh, and focusing on the different things and putting better people at different positions to not only complement but do better than what you could do. Um, but as a company matures, I think in my mind, which is what we've done rinse and repeat now numerous times is that the CEO is the one that's focused on sales. That's focused on marketing. That's focused on external facing terms of the market. If it's venture capital, they're the ones that are, um, involved at least in the early discussions and the sales of the vision of the company for investment. Um, I think that that probably, if you want a company that 
is able to scale in my mind and obviously I'm a bit biased I think sales focused is is better again it doesn't mean that you that their product and engineering and innovation isn't tremendously important but I go back to you know one of the two uh, primary pillars of you know what's important in startup and I think it's sales focused and you don't got sales you, you don't got nothing yeah, back to this, the two pillars. And the one pillar was definitely the sales focus. R remind us the sec the other pillar that you, you mentioned. The other one I think uh, that, I, that I was talking about uh, is around co-founder and finding the right yeah. co-founder to help complement so that you can take care of everything outside of right. the sales and the product and such. So, you know, from being in Nimble for so long, you know, there, a lot of things went well, but I'm sure there were mistakes that you made that – you just go into fulfilled and say, gosh, let's not make that mistake again. Are there any of those that you know, come top of mind? Again, how, how much time you got? We, we, got, a couple hours. <laughs> we got We got time for a couple. Um, you know, I think uh, lessons learned on mistakes that we made, I think taking on too much responsibility, and I see many founders do this, um, and not delegating. Uh, is a is a uh, not only is it a bottleneck, but it's also a culture killer. And um, if you need to be involved in every single decision as a founder, something's messed up. Uh, or as a CEO or as a C-suite, I mean, your company's too small. Let me rephrase that. It depends upon how big your company is and where you are in your life cycle. Right. If you're a company of three hundred, or if you're a company of a hundred, and you got to review every single SOW, I have. I have buddies who are in organizations where before any type of SOW goes out to a customer, the CEO, and this is a company in north of 300, it's got to review it. That's messed up. Like, so lesson, lesson around putting in proper middle management, empowering them, and delegating is imperative for scale. The other thing that's tremendously important is accountability and accountability needs to be held at all levels. And so it's always easy to manage um, rock stars. It's easy to manage that uh, coworker employee that always uh, follows up with an email. There's no missed deadlines, follow throughs, blah, 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 blah. That's easy. That's not that's not effective management. And then there, and, and, and the accountability is easy because there's accountability there. There's accountability already there at all levels. The tough part is having to hold people accountable um, in a constructive way when they're not delivering. Yeah. And I've seen it where in past lives, we've had leaders in quotes who been able to manage certain business units because they had leaders underneath them that were running the whole damn thing. But when they had a subordinate that wasn't meeting expectation and they as a leader had a difficult time holding that subordinate accountable and being able to grow, groom, nurture, support, get out of the way, step in, then that whole part of the business 
showed fracture and wasn't meeting expectation. So accountability and holding people accountable and having tough conversations in a constructive way, quite frankly, I don't think is in everybody's um, toolbox. Yeah. And were you creating systems in place then to make sure you were routinely keeping people accountable? Did, did you start creating systems around that? Not the the organization grows to 300. That's hard. No, I mean, no, you yeah. should. And I didn't do it. I mean, we didn't do it at the beginning. You know, again, it's a, it's a team of 20 and everyone's around the table. And, you know, after work, everyone goes to the brewery and you're able to throw back beers and talk about stuff. And these are, quite frankly, folks that are, you know, fellow soldiers in, in the fight and they're close enough to um, kind of the vision or they're not close enough to it. They're part of the vision that that's easy. As the company scales and you start getting more people, that's all the more important to have those systems involved. But, you know, running a company for the first time and not having that experience on, or, or the not only the experience, but the insight on how to do it better, you maintain that type of command and control as it scales, which then doesn't allow you to delegate and elevate which then creates a bottleneck and, and you don't have those systems. So just by not having those systems and seeing the fission um, and fracture, that's where we started to put in systems. And quite frankly, it were people that were better ops at it than I was to say, hey, yo, sh you schmuck, we got to do this, this, and this. And because you had that trust yeah. uh, between uh, me and Chris, and Chris is able to say that and not feel threatened, you know, by calling me a schmuck. So, and it sounds like you really learned how to go from, you know, a, a visionary, the salesperson and lead to being a manager, right. As the company grew, you had to learn that skill set of not just being a leader, but also being a manager. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. I mean, you don't, I mean, some people, some people have that as part of their DNA from, day one. I mean, I'd like to think that, um, you know, as objectively speaking is a, my EQ has sure as hell grown. And I think I've got, you know, some EQ. Um, but, um, it didn't, wasn't the managerial, uh, experience I had was more on a command and control. And because, especially since you're a founder, you're in a position of authority, you yeah. know, people are kind of, defer to you and quite frankly may not necessarily want to to contradict for whatever reason job security you know blah 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 but no you're absolutely right i mean over the years and having the growth and the experience to see what was working wasn't working and then again having the right teammates around you to hold a mirror to you and to teach you so you can learn so you can teach others and you know continue the circle that requires, you know, time. Yeah. Well, as we, you know, start to wrap up, what is the, what's the vision for Fulfilled? You know, where, where are we going to see Fulfilled in the next five years? We want to take over the world. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, we, we were this morning, we're, we're leveraging, and this is new to us. This is uh, something that we didn't do in, in, in past company. But we are implementing a, uh, a management 
um, construct called EOS. Um, and there's many out there. Um, and a bunch of my buddies, Nick McCall, uh, who had implemented his past company, is helping us as a facilitator. And EOS provides a construct around how do you manage your business, what's real tactical from a yearly, three-year, 10-year vision, what type of rocks are you focused on by quarter, how are you holding yourself and your team accountable, et cetera, et cetera. So this morning, we were reviewing our three-year uh, set of priorities, and so it's totally fresh in, in mind. I'm glad you asked. So in, in three years, you know, we are focused on generating meaningful um, revenue um, and, um, you know, you know, knock on wood, having, um, you know, annual recurring revenue of, of north of 30 million in the three-year time frame, and that's ambitious. Um, we want to have leadership harmony um, and making sure that, we don't go back to the knucklehead, nose-to-nose -nose conversations, but being able to call each other out. And quite frankly, I think having Rick as a third founder naturally is helping with that because yeah. it's not just one-on-one, uh, -on -one, but it's you know three separate strong voices. So that's another one that's super cool. Um, we want to um, build an organization and our EOS priorities, visions, goals, et cetera, is full on shared with our entire team. So as we were starting a company, uh, our last company, fully transparent, I mean, we were more secretive of kind of what our ambitions were. It wasn't necessarily yeah. for the first several years or even later that our, one of our objectives was, was to scale to sell. This one, we full on, every employee, every co-worker co is aware and they have equity in the company too, so we're, we're sharing They're aligned. Um, yeah. all of the um, uh, the opportunity across everybody that we want to scale this, and we want to grow it and build a great company, and we want to sell it um, uh, or go IPO. And then I think the last one would be uh, we want to create a company where we're all proud to be a part of it, and so one of the tactical uh, rocks for the, the three years is creating a company that's consistently recognized as the best place to work. Mm. So it's not just at the expense of sales, 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 or revenue generation, you know, burning out our folks, but truly we want to be a fun place to work where people are, uh, they can choose. There are a lot of choices out there now, especially in the tough tech market. Yeah. Know, people will be excited to, to be a part of uh, Fulfilled. Love that. So, uh, quick fire questions. Was there a, a book for you that was most meaningful in your career, whether it was professional or personal, that you'd recognize? Atlas Shrugged is, mm. um, it's a, good is one. a book by Anne Rand for me where um, her whole uh, approach around uh, objectivism and uh, creating um, – you know, that meaningful work and passion around what you do, uh, that's resonated. I think, you know, as I've gotten um, more rings around the tree, you know, it's kind of tempered a bit, not in terms of the passion, but maybe the ideology. But that was a book that um, truly resonated with me. Um, 
I think I'd probably pick that one. That's a great one. What about a quote? I'm a big quote person. Do you have a favorite quote? Funny you should ask. Uh, uh, Is it right behind you? Hold on one second. Take one second. So there is a poem by Rudyard Kipling. A poem is even better. Called If. And uh, this is a poem, and I'll read it, um, that has been a part of my life um, from uh, third grade and um, that it's so important and I'm going through a midlife crisis as I'm turning 50 I'm seriously contemplating getting a tattoo uh, and I know it sounds <laughs> freaking ridiculous and stupid being such an old fart just depends where uh, good point uh, it'll be <laughs> but let me read it uh, if I can um, yeah, please. So it's If by Rudyard Kipling. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies or being hated. Don't give way to hating and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stop and build them up with worn out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it all on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after you're gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can walk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foe nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. What a great poem. I, love I can't believe you've had that since third grade. I think my third grade poem was probably a Lincoln Park lyric. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. Thank you for indulging me. Sorry. No, that's, that is, that is awesome. Um, well, to, to, to fully wrap us up, do you have any, you know, parting advice that you would share for other CEOs and, and founders that you want to, you want to end with? I think, um, uh, you know, just with the poem in terms of, um, you know, remaining humble and kind, surrounding yourself with those that make you better, um, constantly hustling and networking and um, paying it forward. I think those are some great 
characteristics that if we could strive to, you know, it helps helps us become better and it helps kind of the ecosystem be better. And I want I to thank that. you, man, for for uh, indulging me and having me on the executive. This has been this has been a ton of fun. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yosh, appreciate you so much.